book of Acts. In the first video, we watched Luke open the book by showing us how the risen Jesus was exalted as the king of the world. He promised to send the Holy Spirit as his own personal presence to empower his followers to go out into the world and bear witness to the good news about his kingdom until he would return one day. And so the movement began in Jerusalem as the Spirit came and formed Jesus' followers into the new temple promised by the scriptural prophets. But this generated conflict with the leaders of Jerusalem, and so it led to the persecution of the Christians. But the Spirit transformed it into good. It actually became the means by which the originally Jewish Jesus communities were pushed outside Jerusalem to become a multi-ethnic international movement. And the flagship church of this diverse Jesus movement was in Antioch, the largest city in that part of the Roman Empire. So we left the story with Barnabas and Paul serving in the Antioch church, and the Spirit prompts the church to send them on a missionary journey, which opens up a whole new section of the book. The story is about Paul and his co-workers traveling to different cities around the Roman Empire, announcing the good news that Jesus is king. The first mission is into the interior of what's called Asia Minor, found in modern Turkey, and it ends with an important meeting of the apostles back in Jerusalem. The second mission is through Asia Minor and then into ancient Greece. And then the third mission is through that same territory again, and it concludes with Paul's journey all the way back to Jerusalem. Now, in recounting all these stories, Luke has highlighted a number of important themes by repeating them. So first is the continued mission to Israel. Whenever Paul enters a new city, he always goes first to the Jewish synagogue to share about the risen King Jesus and how he's forming a new multi-ethnic family of God. Now, most often, lots of people come to recognize Jesus as the Messiah, but some oppose Paul. Sometimes they even throw him out of town as a dangerous rebel who opposes the Torah and Jewish tradition. And this tension culminates after the first journey, leading to an important council in Jerusalem. So Paul discovers that there are some Jewish Christians in Antioch, and they're claiming that unless non-Jewish people become Jewish by practicing circumcision, the Sabbath, obeying the kosher food laws, that they can't become part of Jesus' family. But Paul and Barnabas, they radically disagree. And so they take the debate to a leadership council in Jerusalem. Now there, Peter, Paul, and James, the brother of Jesus, they all show from the scriptures and from their experience that God's plan was always to include the nations within his covenant people. So they write a letter requiring non-Jewish Christians to stop participating in pagan temple sacrifices, but they don't require them to adopt an ethnically Jewish identity or obey the laws in the Torah. Now, this decision was groundbreaking for the history of the Jesus movement. Jesus, he's the Jewish Messiah, but he's also the risen king of all nations. And so one's membership among his people is not based on ethnic identity or following the laws of the Torah. It's based simply on trusting Jesus and then following his teachings. And it's this multi-ethnic reality of the Jesus movement that leads us to the next theme Luke wants us to see in the missionary journeys, namely the clash of cultures between the early Christians and the Greek and Roman world. Luke records multiple clashes in Philippi, Athens, and Ephesus. Paul goes and announces Jesus as the revelation of the one true God and as the king of the world, who shows up all other gods and idols as powerless and futile. And his message is consistently viewed as subversive to the Roman way of life, and he gets accused of being a dangerous social revolutionary. 
These stories show how the multi-ethnic, monotheistic Jesus communities did not fit into any cultural boxes known to the Roman people. The ancient world had just never seen anything like them. And the Christians aroused more than just suspicion. Another theme Luke repeats is how Paul and the Christians are constantly being accused of rebellion, even treason against Caesar, the Roman emperor. People heard Paul correctly. He was announcing that there's another king, Jesus. And they also correctly saw that the Christian way of life was a challenge to many Roman cultural values. But every time Paul gets arrested and interrogated before Roman officials, they don't see any threat and he's dismissed. These stories show us the paradox that the early church presented to the world. It was a Jewish messianic movement, but it was ethnically diverse, full of communities that treated men and women and rich and poor and slave and free all as equals. And they all gave their allegiance to King Jesus alone and no other God or king. And so their very existence, it turned upside down the core values of Roman culture, but the Christians posed no military threat because Jesus taught them to be people of peace. And so the only crime Paul and the Christians can be accused of is not conforming to the status quo. The book's final section returns the focus to Paul's witness spreading from Jerusalem to Rome. His final missionary journey ends back in Jerusalem, where his controversial reputation precedes him. He gets attacked by Jewish people who think that he's betrayed Israel, which attracts the attention of Roman soldiers who think Paul's a terrorist from Egypt starting a rebellion. And so he gets arrested. From here, Paul is put on trial, first before the Jewish leaders of the Sanhedrin in Jerusalem, but then before a series of Roman leaders in Caesarea. There's Governor Felix, who puts Paul off for the next governor, Festus, who eventually brings Paul before King Agrippa. He ends up in prison for years, even though at each trial the charges never stick to him, because all he's doing is announcing that his hope in the resurrection has been fulfilled in King Jesus. This is hardly a crime. But at this point, the Roman legal machine can't just turn him away, and so Paul ends up appealing to Rome's highest court. Now, you would think that all this prison time would be a setback for Paul, because his heartbeat is to be on the road starting new Jesus communities. But the Spirit orchestrates everything for good in this book. And so the imprisonment gives Paul time to have his most important apostolic letters written. And these become the way that his missionary legacy is carried on long after he dies. Eventually, Paul was transferred as a prisoner to Rome. And after a terrifying near-death voyage across the Mediterranean, Paul ends up in house arrest in Rome, awaiting his delayed trial. And so he's able to host, in quite a nice house, regular meetings that reach Jews and Gentiles. And the book's final words are about how Paul is announcing the kingdom of God and boldly teaching all about the Lord, Jesus, the Messiah, totally unhindered, all happening right under Caesar's nose in Rome. The unified work of Luke Acts, it does so much more than give us a history of Jesus and the early church. He's showing how the kingdom of God came on earth as in heaven through Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, through the coming of his spirit to empower the church to bear witness from Jerusalem to the ends of the earth. And as Luke has told the story, he's given us scores of examples of what faithfulness to King Jesus looks like. It looks like sharing the good news of the risen King Jesus in word and in action. It means forming diverse Jesus communities where people of all kinds come together, where they're treated equally and give allegiance to King Jesus and live by his teachings. 
And all of this is done by trusting in the power and the guidance of the Spirit to lead the way forward. And that's what the book of Acts is all about. All right. And so if that's the rest of the book of Acts that we'll be walking through over the next few weeks. And this morning, I get the privilege of inviting my wife, Debbie Mendoza, to come share with us this morning. Good morning, Life Spring. After the prayer time this morning and the worship and that, I feel like I don't even need to preach because it's like everything I was going to say just, you know, was there. So it's just confirming to me that the months that I've taken to write this, you know, um, that this is what the Lord wanted to share with you today. So as many times as we've gone through the Bible in a year, We've gone through the book of Acts. Many of us know the stories. But this time around, hearing from the different speakers has been very enlightening for me. Listening to our pastors, each with their own perspectives and life experiences as they break down these familiar stories to us has been very refreshing and inspiring. Because the truth is, if you've spent any time in church, these stories can start to feel like just that stories. They're from so long ago about people we've elevated to a status that we think personally we can't attain. Stephen, Saul, later called Paul, Barnabas, Peter, James, and all the first disciples who saw tongues of fire above each other's heads at Pentecost. So why do we keep retelling these stories? When you think about it, the Bible is made up of the same words that we read over and over. We retell these stories because, as Jesus said in Matthew 4.4, man shall not live by bread alone, but on every word that comes out of the mouth of God. The Christian, therefore, hangs on to these stories, and we read them over and over, and now they're so familiar. If we aren't careful, the more we hear them and read them, the easier it is to just dismiss them as history and think of them as just the stories about the beginning of our faith, just stories from that time. But now as a church life spring, we are taking these stories and bringing them to you every week. Every time they come with a fresh perspective, a new call to action in our lives today because that is the why of these stories. They've been preserved for us because every generation of Christian needs them. And through these stories, we see God's faithfulness and character, and we see how people have responded to his goodness and to his great story of salvation. And we get to choose, every time we hear the words spoken, how we are going to respond today. For the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, and piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit, of both joints and marrow, and able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Hebrews 4.12 So as the book of Acts is brought to us every week, we all get to allow this living and active word to pierce our souls and spirits and judge our thoughts and motivations. These aren't just stories of heroic people of the faith who lived long ago. They have the power to breathe life into us and give us hope, but only if we allow them to. 
So today, I get the privilege of bringing to you Acts 13. And once again, we will go over a few stories that will sound familiar to some of you. My prayer is that these familiar stories will be like a breath of fresh air for all of us as we believe that the word is living and active and that it is able to bring about change so many thousands of years after these words were written. The first few verses of Acts 13 then set the stage for the entire chapter and for the chapters to follow. Verse 1. Now there were at Antioch in the church that was there prophets and teachers, Barnabas and Simeon who was called Niger and Lucius of Cyrene and Manaen who had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch and Saul. While they were ministering to the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then when they had fasted and prayed and laid hands on them, they sent them away. Let's stop right there. It is so easy to read those words and say, yeah, that's what happened. The Holy Spirit said to send them, so they did. But there is a whole story behind those couple of verses. Saul and Barnabas, as we've heard, have come to this church because of the growth that was happening there. They stayed on to disciple the new converts. And now, after only one year, the Holy Spirit tells the prophets and teachers there, it is time to release them. One year. Even though a lot can happen in a year, really, in one year, you can feel like you're just getting started at something. Relationships are growing, plans are being made, memories are being created. And with the way time is just flying by these days, one year might feel like just too short for anything. Of course, that is in our reference of time. Many of us in this room have been called at one time or another by the Holy Spirit, to leave something after a time that seemed too short for us. That call to leave one thing and walk or run into the new comes, at, maybe it comes like the way it came here while praying and fasting, but it can also come through a change in circumstances that you have no control over. It can come through the way God speaks to you where you know that you know that was him. However that call, that call comes, letting go and stepping into that new thing, it isn't always easy. So I'm going to start by telling you a story of a time that God asked Jesse and me to leave something after only two and a half months. We were living in Michigan, and through a set of painful circumstances, God led us to this church just outside of Detroit called Ascend. We were in desperate need of their teaching, the warm welcome they gave us, and the way they embraced us. It was a new church, very vibrant and spirit-filled. We felt at home with the loud music, the diversity, and the freedom of movement the Spirit is allowed there. In the few weeks we were at Ascend, God used that church body to bandage us with warmth and laughter. We cried a lot in that church. We laughed a lot. He washed our wounds with the word that was preached every Sunday and gave us hope for the future and a life beyond what we were walking through at the time. God used the Send Church to heal us, and then he sent us on our way. We didn't get a chance to serve there, although that was what we wanted to do more than anything. Their vision was easy to catch, and we wanted to run with it. We could see where they could use us 
and we were willing to give of our gifting and our talents and our skills for their cause. Ascend Church was the place where Jesse and I wanted to serve. If we were the ones writing the plans for our lives, that's where we would have put down roots. But it was not to be. The Lord had called us to Edgewood, Washington. And we knew that 100%. So to be obedient to God's direction in our lives, we knew that we didn't have the stay option. Letting go of something that we loved so much and had so much hope for was very difficult. But we chose to trust that what God had for us was way better than we could imagine. So years later now, we could look back on that short, sweet time at Ascend and treasure the memory of how God allowed us to experience that church. He allowed that very short season, and he's still using it in our lives. The people of that church continue to impact us and our vision in ways that we don't even realize sometimes. In fact, every time you receive an email from Pastor Jesse, you're receiving a bit of the legacy of Ascend. When we left Ascend, we knew that our focus could no longer be on the church that we didn't have anymore. Our focus had to be on God's plan. So we let go and came to LifeSpring and trusted him to continue writing our story. Now from the way the story is told in Acts 13, we can't tell if it was easy for Paul and Barnabas to transition into this new thing that was life away from Antioch. We just know they were commissioned and they set off into the unknown, unknown at least to them. They didn't know all the people they were going to meet. All they knew was that they were called by the Holy Spirit to take the story of Jesus to other people, people they didn't yet know. Verse 4 starts, So being sent out by the Holy Spirit, and I'll put a pin here for just a moment. When I read these words, I don't know about you, my tendency is to slide right by them because if I'm not careful, I think that being sent out by the Holy Spirit probably meant that they floated through that time and distance from Antioch to the next stage of their journey just a few inches off the ground. You know, there's, there are these TikToks. I'm a TikTok fan. Maybe you've seen them where the person talks about something that's a good habit that they do but isn't a good habit that everyone does. And so they talk about it, and then they say, am I better than everyone? You know, sometimes I think that's how we look at Paul and Barnabas being sent up by the Holy Spirit. Like they walked on air, like they were better than everyone, on a higher plane than all the people around them. And that because the Holy Spirit sent them out, that they didn't have emotions and thoughts about the things that happened to them. That being sent out by the Holy Spirit made their lives a whole lot easier. And that when we too are sent out by the Holy Spirit, our lives will be easier. But this week in our Bible reading plan in Luke 4, and if you want to join our Bible reading plan inside that bulletin, there is a QR code. You scan that and you can get signed up. We came across this week a different understanding of what it could mean to be sent out by the Holy Spirit. Jesus had just been baptized by John in the Jordan and had a supernatural, what we like to call in our Christian talk, a mountaintop experience. And it was witnessed by everyone there. Luke's description of it is found in chapter 3, verse 21 to 22. 
And the Holy Spirit descended upon him in bodily form like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son, in you I am well pleased. Then in chapter 4, verses 1 to 2, Luke continues, Now Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led around by the Spirit in the wilderness for 40 days. And he ate nothing during those days, and when they had ended, he was hungry. That looks so different from the mental picture I get of being sent out by the Holy Spirit. What has been your thought of what it looks like to be sent out or off by the Holy Spirit? Does it line up with what we just read about Jesus? I think this is a good reminder that even the Holy Spirit-filled, directed Christian life is not always an easy one. That it often looks nothing like we would have predicted it to be or wanted it to be. So let's get back to verse 4. Being sent out by the Holy Spirit, now we have a better idea, they went down to Seleucia and from there they sailed to Cyprus. When they reached Salamis, they began to proclaim the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews, and they also had John as their helper. When they had gone through the whole island as far as Paphos, they found a magician, a Jewish false prophet whose name was Bar-Jesus, who was with the proconsul Sergius Paulus, a man of intelligence. This man summoned Barnabas and Saul and sought to hear the word of God. But Elimus the magician, for so his name is translated, was opposing them, seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. But Paul, Saul, who was also known as Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, fixed his gaze on him. And once again we see that term being filled with the Holy Spirit. But this time, Paul unleashes that power onto someone who was in opposition to the gospel and to the work that God was doing. And Elimus walks away blind. Verse 12 says, Then the proconsul believed when he saw what had happened, being amazed at the teaching of the Lord. I want you to see this with me. What did Paul and Barnabas do when they got to their first stop? After they called out their first stop, this new place, they engaged with the people in that community. They made themselves available and accepted an invitation to go speak to the proconsul. So here's part two of the story of what happened when we left the Send Church to come to Edgewood. When we got here, Jesse and I made a conscious decision to jump into life at LifeSpring. It was December 2018, and so there were life group Christmas parties to attend. We arrived in Puyallup on a Sunday where we were graciously allowed to stay at the Junemans to use their home for the next four months, and we are forever grateful. Tuesday night, Wednesday night, we went to life group Christmas parties. From the time I got a, from one of those parties, I got a job that I started three weeks later, worked at for three years, and still have friends there to this day. And from the other, we found a life group that we were able to attend for the next year or so until COVID hit. So please allow me to do a shameless life group plug right now. There are many opportunities outside of a Sunday morning to get to know people at church. To get to know each other, to engage with people you would never talk to at a Sunday morning service. We call them life groups and next level classes. 
Most of them are taking a break right now or wrapping up for this quarter. In fact, last Sunday evening, a group of about 10 of us finished a class right here at the church, the Next Level class. We got to know each other a little bit, shared with each other, ate cake and cookies and drank coffee. The people who showed up here that, for that class every week probably would never have met each other in a Sunday morning service. But look at us now. <laughs> you can't tell by looking at that picture. That was about take eight. Yep. Lots of laughter, lots of joking around. Yes. And you could have that too. Also, just ended last week was um, the men's and women's life groups. We're taking a break and opening back up, I think, late April. And there are different life groups that meet in people's homes where you can get to know other people, people you don't know yet, but who could become a part of your life. And if you don't see a life group that you like, talk to Pastor Laura about starting one of your own. So anyway, back to my story. When we came to Edgewood, we jumped into life at LifeSpring because we knew God had called us here. Everyone, and I mean everyone, was a stranger to us. But we knew that the longer we took to engage in the community, the harder it would get. So, at the very first women's Christmas party, I remember there was a photo booth that Jason Neal was the photographer. I got all dressed up, took some deep breaths, and stepped into that room. We had only been here about 10 days, and neither one of us could keep anybody's name straight. That night, I decided to get my picture taken at the photo booth, even though I didn't know anyone there. Got a picture taken by myself, because I had a goal, and I thought to myself, I will get to know the people of this church. And the next time there is a party or a photo booth, there will be others in the picture with me. We had moved from Belize to Michigan, from Michigan to here, all by God's direction. We were determined to do our part in making those moves successful. And we knew that God would do the rest. In that next year and before COVID, I accomplished my goal and never had a photo taken by myself again at this church. I've had my picture taken with some who have gone on to be with Jesus, some who have moved away, some who have gone on to plant a church elsewhere. And here's one of my favorites. So the point of me telling you this story is that when God brings the new thing, we get to embrace it or not. Saul and Barnabas didn't pray to leave Antioch. They were living their lives and doing their thing. And then one day, while worshiping and fasting along with prophets and teachers, God said they were to go and step into something new. And so that is what they did. What do you do? when God calls you from one thing to another. When he has told you what the next step is, when he's given you clear direction about something, do you, like Saul and Barnabas, take one bold step of faith after another? Or do you do like the Israelites after they were freed from slavery by a mighty move of God? Remember their story? They knew God had saved them and was providing for them daily. But when times got a little hard, or things didn't look like they wanted them to, 
or they were bored, what did they do? They complained and started to look back with longing to the life they had once prayed to escape. A few weeks ago at our annual membership meeting, Pastor Joe Duvo prophesied. He said, we go as God is going, and as we are going, God will go with us. That resonated so strongly in my spirit. But you know, sometimes it is difficult to recognize that God is doing a new thing because we're so comfortable with and wrapped up in the old thing that we don't want to let go and move on. In the next few verses, we see that Paul and Barnabas kept going in the direction that the Lord had called them. They kept going as the Spirit led. They continued to preach the story of Jesus in the synagogues by invitation. Because you see, the story wasn't really about Paul and Barnabas. They weren't set apart for their own comfort. They were set apart, called out into the new thing, to go to places where they would get to tell the story of Jesus to the people who needed to hear it. Verse 13. Now Paul and his companions put out to sea from Paphos and came to Perga in Pamphylia. But John left them and returned to Jerusalem. But going on from Perga, they arrived at Pisidian Antioch, and on the Sabbath day they went into the synagogue and sat down. After the reading of the law and the prophets, the synagogue officials said to them, Brethren, if you have any word of exhortation for the people, say it. The invitation to engage with this people came, and Paul and Barnabas accepted. They stood up to participate and recounted to them the part of the story that they already knew from oral and written tradition. And then he moved on to the exciting part of the story that was new to them, the part that brought hope of salvation to anyone listening then and now. He talked about the 40 years the Israelites spent in the desert, and how they came to the land of Canaan. He told them about the story of the judges and their first king, Saul, and then David, a man after God's own heart, and how Jesus the Savior was a descendant of David, fulfilling God's promise. He spoke of John the Baptist, who kept pointing to Jesus whenever he spoke, and that the powers that be condemned Jesus to die because they didn't recognize him for who he was. Paul told them about Jesus' death and resurrection, and how after he was raised from the dead, he appeared to his disciples for many days afterwards. And that those disciples were the same ones who were spreading this good news as the witnesses that they were to all the events that had happened. Saul had been an anti-Christian zealot before his conversion. But now he lays out the argument for why Jesus is the promised Messiah. He refers to Psalm 16.10 where David wrote, For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol. You will not allow your Holy One to undergo decay. But then Paul argues, David died and underwent decay, and Jesus didn't. So he says of Jesus, Therefore, let it be known to you, brethren, that through him forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. And through him, everyone who believes is freed from all things, from which you could not be freed through the law of Moses. Paul then advises his listeners to pay attention so that they can be a part of the work that God is accomplishing and to not miss it. Look, you scoffers, and be astonished and perish, for I am accomplishing a work in your days, a work which you will never believe, though someone should describe it. 
Can you look back in your life and see now where God was doing something major, but at the time it didn't make sense to you? Like, or move from ascend to life spring? Is it possible that he might be doing something right now that looks totally unclear, but it is part of his plan for you? Can you trust him to be doing something similar right now, even though you can't see it? Will you allow him to accomplish his work in and through you? Verse 42. As Paul and Barnabas were going out, the people kept begging that these things might be spoken to them the next Sabbath. Now when the meeting of the synagogue had broken up, many of the Jews and of the God-fearing proselytes followed Paul and Barnabas, who, speaking to them, were urging them to continue in the grace of God. The next Sabbath, nearly the whole city assembled to hear the word of the Lord. Such great news. What a good word was brought to everyone there. The story of salvation and hope of God's faithfulness through the ages had gone viral. The life-changing message was delivered with power and authority. And what happened? History repeated itself, as it continues to do today. On the one hand, those people who held on to old religious traditions and beliefs puffed out their chests with jealousy and a superiority complex. On the other hand, the message was received by some with gladness and rejoicing. And it's the same choice that lies before us today. When the good news that leads to repentance comes, for those who already serve Jesus and for those who don't, every single one of us gets to choose what to do with that word. Free will still factors into our decisions. God gives us the option to accept it or refuse it. And you know that word can come in so many different ways. Or God isn't limited in his ways of speaking into our hearts. As we've seen in scripture, the Lord will give salvation to those who believe in him. Will you receive what he's speaking to you? What he's already spoken to you? Or will you be like the Jews in our story, filled with jealousy and contradict what is being spoken? Because who rejected the good news of grace that encompasses the progression of God's plan? It was the religious leaders, the rich, well-to-do leaders and prominent people in the society but the hungry the ones who hunger and thirst after righteousness they catch a whiff of the good news and it is a delight to them and so they believed when the Gentiles heard this verse 48 they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord and as many as had been appointed to eternal life believed and the word of the Lord was being spread through the whole region when Saul and Barnabas set out from Antioch, they had no idea. They were going to come up against the prominent women and the leading men of a city and that they would be persecuted and deported. But that is what happened. And after all that, chapter 13 wraps up this way. Verse 52. And the disciples were continually filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. These words inspire me greatly. And the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. After everything they had experienced, gave up, and lost, these were the words used to describe them. That is what I would like to be said of me. How about you? 
Has God been calling you to a new thing that looks nothing like you would have designed for your own life? Has he spoken to you, told you what it is, or because of life circumstances, you're already in it? Today, will you get to work doing your part in the new thing so that like Saul and Barnabas, you'll be set apart for the work that he has for you? Ask the Holy Spirit to equip you to take that next step that he's asked you to take or that circumstances are directing you to take, whatever that step may be. Ask him to help you to be obedient. We don't have to do this on our own. To not back down, to not be looking longingly at the past, but to grow your trust in him that he's got plans for you, people for you to meet, a job for you to do, sharing the gospel in spite of opposition you may face along the way. Because, you see, the story is not about you or me. It's about Jesus. I'm going to ask the worship team to come back now as I close with this call to action from Isaiah 43, 18-19. Do not call to mind the former things or ponder the things of the past. Behold, I will do something new. Now it will spring forth. Will you not be aware of it? I will even make a roadway in the wilderness, rivers in the desert. There are two parts to this new thing, your part and God's part. It will come to the best result if both are working together. For sure, God will do the new thing, there isn't a doubt. He may already be doing it, even if it doesn't look the way it would if you had been writing the story. Our part is to get up and follow him into the unknown. Because rest assured, the unknown to us is not unknown to him. There is a word in Spanish that we use in our language that encapsulates the prayer. I'm going to suggest that we all pray this week. The word is ganas. And it has quite a few meanings, but in this instance it could mean desire or the want to, combined with courage. As you think about this bold step of faith and obedience that you know is the next step in your journey, would you ask the Holy Spirit for the ganas to do it, the desire to do it, and the courage to do it? Or our prayer team is going to be up front, and we would love for you to come and have someone to agree with you as you take the step that you've already been called to take. Because as I've been speaking, you know what it is. You know what's come to mind. Because you and God are the only ones who know what that step is. From personal experience, I know it is probably not going to be comfortable. It's probably going to stretch you. But remember what Pastor Joe said. We go as God is going. And as we are going, God will go with us. And my prayer for all of us is that even if it's with tears in our eyes, we will be able to say to our Heavenly Father, this new thing that you're doing, Lord, I'm in it with you. Not because I know where you're taking me, but because I know you and I trust you. Amen.